In 20 years, we not only have a largely clean and renewable electric generation and distribution sector, but we've also replaced fossil fuels in our industrial sector with renewable molecules via the electrolysis of water with clean wind and solar as the energy input. Hydrogen, the most abundant element on Earth, has been hailed for decades as a beacon of the coming clean energy revolution. So why has it still not arrived? And why is everyone all of a sudden talking about green hydrogen? My name is Nico Johnson, and I'm your host as we navigate the hype, the hope, the reality, and the fiction in this search for truth in green hydrogen. This five-part series presents unique perspectives on how each of us might play a role in the greening of the hydrogen economy, the massive opportunities, and potential pitfalls that come with it. Green Hydrogen is a production of Suncast Media, and Season 1 is brought to you by Intersect Power. In this episode four, we have the pleasure of introducing you to Mr. Rafi Garabedian, who is the co-founder and CEO of Electric Hydrogen. Prior to Electric Hydrogen, Rafi served as chief technology officer at none other than First Solar, a company you may have heard of here in the solar industry. He was there since 2012, and he managed the company's technology and product roadmaps for more than eight years. I find it notable that when Rafi joined First Solar, his title was Director of Disruptive Technologies. He also spent 15 years in the microelectromechanical systems industry, where he developed new products from automotive engine controls to fiber optic telecommunications switching systems. In short, Rafi has seen a lot of innovation in industry, and today we get to hear his expert opinion on the coming green hydrogen opportunity. Well, as we dig further into the hydrogen economy and how it is unfolding, not the least of which for us in the solar industry, I thought it would be prudent to bring in Mr. Rafi Garabedian, the co-founder and CEO of Electric Hydrogen. But most of you probably recognize that name from his previous role as chief technology officer for the better part of eight years at none other than First Solar. He joined First Solar back in 2008 as director of disruptive technologies. Fitting for today's conversation. Rafi, welcome to Suncast. Thank you, Nico. It's great to be here. Believe me when I say the pleasure is ours to have a chance to lean in and ask questions of someone who has watched technology evolve both in uh, the solar industry and beyond. But I have to ask, first and foremost, the question that's on everyone's mind uh, listening. What compelled you to leave uh, First Solar at a time when First Solar is arguably still killing it in the marketplace, doing an excellent job introducing Series 6 and beyond? Why leave the solar industry and, and go into hydrogen? 13 years is a long time to be in one place, Nico. And uh, I'm a little bit like a crow. I like shiny things. Um, <laughs> uh, as a technologist, I love change. Change to me, I'm, I'm a, a tremendous technology optimist. Change to me is representative of progress. I believe in making the world a better place through our efforts. Solar is doing that, but solar has evolved to the point now where technological progress is not the primary driver. Other constraints, particularly in the market, are slowing down well, not slowing down, actually, adoption is quite rapid, but are constraining the further adoption of solar. The same goes for wind. And so as a technologist, 
I started to feel that my efforts were no longer instrumental in the future mm -hmm. progress of solar and wind generation. And, you know, looking at the spectrum of energy transition, you, you have a lot of options. I know you have to have looked deeply into energy storage and other uh, aspects of the energy transition. You're on the board of Natron, for instance. Is there anything particular at a high level about the hydrogen economy that just stands out for you as the, the shining star? Yeah, Nico, um, I'm on the board of Natron. I'm on the board of ESS, uh, which recently went public through a SPAC merger, uh, both energy storage companies. And, uh, you know, talk about constraints for further solar adoption, also wind adoption. Uh, battery storage is obviously high on that list. Having said that, again, as a technologist looking at that domain, I feel that there's enough activity. There are enough yeah. smart people going off to do that. And, you know, when you measure your next step, you think about not only what am I, you know, potentially capable of being good at, maybe even knock on wood being great at, mm. but you also look at what's needed. Where's our gap? Where, where's there work that needs to be done that isn't getting done? That's the thought process that took me into this journey of uh, thinking about renewable hydrogen. So as uh, my co-founders and I looked at the energy transition writ large and thought through what can be directly electrified and what are the costs and constraints to that direct electrification, we ultimately had to conclude, as many people have, right? it's, it's not news, but it uh, takes a little thought to get there, that there are absolutely gigantic sectors of industry, of human activity that rely on chemical inputs or energy inputs that are not easily directly electrified. Mm -hmm. And so how do we go address those constraints? How do we go fix those, those problems? You know, by many estimates, direct electrification decades from now could take us to half of our total energy consumption. What are we going to do wow. with the other half? Yeah. That's, that's the problem that, that we, we ultimately put our minds to. A lot of folks listening will also be asking themselves, as a corporate man who has founded other companies, but has been a decade plus at a major publicly traded entity, you must have no lack of folks as suitors asking you to join their team. How do you go about the process of selecting your co-founding team? Were you chosen? Did you choose Derek? And how did that come about? You know, there's this kind of Venn diagram of characteristics that I was looking for as I thought about my next gig. It had to be something scalable and important because I wanted to have an impact. That's really the reason I wanted to do something, something new was to have an impact. It had to be technologically driven because that's, that's what I like to do. That's, that's where my experience is. But actually, I surprised myself in quiet moments as I was transitioning out of First Solar and thinking about what do I want to do next. The big surprise that I didn't realize until I sat and thought calmly about it was that the team I work with is actually up there. It's maybe the most important characteristic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why is that? It's because we live our lives day to day, hour by hour, and the people we're with, the people we surround ourselves with, they not only contribute to our effectiveness and our success, but the joy we find in, in our work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a big believer, if you don't find your work joyful, you're not going to do a good job. So picking the right people, you know, most of my career has been in entrepreneurship one way or another. 
the corporate job, the 13 years at First Solar really was my only corporate job in my whole career. I'm hopeful at this point that it hasn't ruined me. There's a real chance it might have. Um, but <laughs> but oh, what I'm funny. finding is I, uh, as I get comfortable helping to build a new company is that the, uh, the, old, the old tools and habits are coming back. The founding of this company, Electric Hydrogen, actually goes back to my co-founder, David Eaglesham. Dave was the CTO at First Solar before me. He hired me and gave me that cool title, Director of Disruptive (laughs) Technologies, which I I still cherish, by the way, to this day. He got me into the renewable industry. Before that, my entire experience had been in semiconductors and related kinds of devices and technologies. Dave showed me when he recruited me to First Solar a, a mission that I was ready for at that time in my life. It transformed me, transformed my passion for work in unexpected ways. I was hooked. And, you know, 13 years later, I'm still hooked. Uh, That's what informed my next choice and my continuing focus on renewables and decarbonization. When I decided to leave for solar, Dave was uh, an entrepreneur in residence at Breakthrough Energy Ventures. And he had been Mm -hmm. spending the last, I think, better part of two years thinking about this problem. What's next in decarbonization? What's the big problem that needs to be solved? So really the inception of the company, the focus on generating renewable hydrogen at fossil parity prices, that's Dave's. That's Dave's big idea. When I left for solar, he reached out and he called me and he said, look, you know, we got to do this together. And I, I got to tell you, I was a skeptic. So having been at First Solar for many years, you can imagine we had looked at electrolysis and hydrogen production as a market expansion opportunity over and over again. It's a natural thing to do, right? It's been talked about for decades. Why wouldn't you go there? Every time we looked at it, we couldn't make the economics work. Mm-hmm. We just, just couldn't figure out how to get to price points low enough to actually move industries, right? Because in infrastructure and in energy, price matters. It's, mm-hmm. it's all well and good to say, decarbonization. It's all well and good to say policy can have an effect. And those things are all true and important, but they're not sufficient for large-scale mass adoption. And I think both solar and wind show that to us, right? The hockey stick in solar and wind adoption came when price points got past. At first, solar, we used to call it grid parity. I think that was an industry-wide term at some point. When we got to that kind of mythical, magical number where the energy cost was lower than the alternatives, man, the most conservative utilities in the country and the world all of a sudden moved away from fossil resources and said, we need to buy solar. Why? Mm. Is it because it's low carbon? No, it's because it's cheap. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. you know, that that's the vision uh, for us. That's what we're trying to do in, in the gas industry now. Let's see, you asked about founders. So the co-founders of Electric Hydrogen are Dave Eaglesham, myself, and Derek Warnick. Derek was also working at Breakthrough Energy Ventures and a friend of Dave's, and we brought him in as our CFO, and uh, Dorian West, who's a 15-year Tesla engineering leader. Well, Rafi, you and I are both aware that the idea of hydrogen economy is nothing new. As you said, in San Francisco, we both experienced then-Governor Schwarzenegger pull his hydrogen Hummer up to a filling station and declare that the hydrogen economy was here you know, more than 15 years have passed since that day, and uh, we still don't have a, a veritable hydrogen economy. I'd love to hear from your perspective as a technologist. Why has it taken so long for this market to develop 
And are there fundamental bottlenecks in technology development that have prevented this breakthrough? So first of all, Nico, let me just say, I, I, I hate the term hydrogen economy because there isn't okay. one. Okay. <laughs> Adequate. <laughs> yeah. Um, hydrogen has use cases. It's a useful fuel in many industries today, and it's a useful chemical feedstock in many industries today. The, the hydrogen economy, air quotes, is this mythical thing that people have hypothesized could be, but has never come to pass. I don't think the barriers have been technological. Well, maybe. Hydrogen is mostly energy. So splitting water into hydrogen takes a lot of energy, which then gets released when you burn or utilize the hydrogen in a, in a process downstream. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a way to move energy around in a chemical form. And really, why has hydrogen not taken off to date is because the input energy cost hasn't been cheap enough to make that gas competitive with other alternatives until very recent. Yeah. Now, there are other constraints to the cost of renewable hydrogen, and we'll talk about that later when we get to more technology-focused questions. Rafi, do you feel that there are any particular myths that have already been adequately addressed or debunked around applications, uh, or maybe better said, where is there still hype versus application? Myths in hydrogen abound. It is not a myth that hydrogen is explosive, uh, so is natural gas, but that's true. The real myth in hydrogen is that it's going to do everything. And, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think, fell prey to that when he foretold of the hydrogen car taking over the auto industry. And, you know, there are many people today still talking about hydrogen as a fuel for passenger vehicles. And, uh, you know, I'm going to put that in the myth column or the hype column. To that end, given that you are thinking about the go-to-market strategy for hydrogen electric and looking at the various applications that do make sense, what sectors do you foresee hydrogen playing a key role? What major sectors will use or leverage hydrogen and how? Nico, we think a lot about this at Electric Hydrogen, and I'll come at it first from, from the very high level. What's the goal we're, we're setting for ourselves? The end state we're trying to achieve is massive decarbonization of really hard to decarbonize industrial sectors. To do so requires focusing on applications that are scalable, that are at a very large scale, and that emit a lot of greenhouse gas. So we can go through the list of those applications kind of in, in no particular order, but current uses of, of hydrogen today include the production of ammonia fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So half the nitrogen in our bodies is the result of artificial ammonia production from the Haber-Bosch process, which fixes nitrogen from the air. And hydrogen is the critical energetic input to that process. That's not going away anytime soon. And we need to find a way to decarbonize that entire industry, which, you know, back of the envelope would require roughly a terawatt, maybe more of renewable electrolysis worldwide. Wow. Massive. Steel is another massive industry. And I won't go into as much detail, but, but steel can also be decarbonized. There are processes in existence today that can use hydrogen as both the energetic and the chemically reductive input to mm -hmm. the reduction of iron ore to metallic iron. I should also mention the third, which is petrochemical, right? So the black stuff we pump out of the ground gets converted and upgraded through refining processes, and hydrogen is a critical input to that entire value stream. 
which currently currently all three of those hydrogen streams come from natural gas, the uh, steam methane reformation process, which directly emits the the carbon from the methane molecule into the air. Those are the existing use cases, but the future use cases at the right price point cause those existing use cases to pale in comparison. So hydrogen can replace at the right price point natural gas as the buffer energy or the energy that's used for capacity in the electric generating sector. And there's a big open question right now whether electrochemical storage batteries will be more cost effective or less cost effective than hydrogen burned in combustion turbines and stored in caverns underground the same way we store natural gas today. So big open question, a massive opportunity, and actually plenty of opportunity to go around for both batteries and renewable gas, hydrogen. I feel like one of the obvious areas that our industry needs more education is exactly on this point, because you hear folks talk about the nexus of solar and hydrogen, and I know we're going to get into that in a moment. And it's around what I think I heard you say is this whole idea of hydrogen as a storage product. But I don't think I've heard anyone adequately explain that to me the way you just did. So effectively, it replaces that gas, as I think you mentioned, as a buffer energy burned and stored then in caverns underground. Did I hear you correctly? Yeah, you did, Nico. That's 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 right. So you can okay. store electricity from, a, I mean, the thing about renewables, right, is they're intermittent. They're not necessarily present when demand exists, when you want them. So you got to store it. You got to store the energy. Yeah. And we, you know, the utility industry calls that capacity versus energy, right? That storage yeah. of kilowatt hours or energy, joules, can be done via electrochemical process in a battery. Most, if not all practical batteries scale, the cost scales with the number of hours that you want to store. So if you want to store an hour, it's not very expensive. If you want to store 100 hours, it's really expensive for a given technology. That's the problem with electrochemical storage. The storage mm-hmm. itself is expensive. The electric system needs many different grades of storage. It needs short duration storage. It needs mid duration storage to move energy from the generating time during the day to the, to the demand time during the day. It also needs ultimately seasonal storage, right? Because some times of the year, you have a lot more wind than other times of the year. Batteries work really well when you cycle them every day because you get to depreciate the cost of that battery over many, many cycles during its life. For long duration storage, events that happen, discharge events that are needed only a few times a year. Think about a a simple cycle uh, peaker plant, gas peaker plant. That plant might only run a few hundred hours maybe a year, right? But it makes a lot of money in those few hundred hours because it's desperately needed for grid reliability purposes. That's the purpose that hydrogen stored in geologic formations can serve and dispel natural gas from a use case. You were in the category of future use cases that at the right price point can make the existing use cases pale. We've touched on battery storage, uh, which is something that I know we're all very interested in understanding. What other future use cases are you seeing? Well, there's really fun ones like replacing uh, kerosene in aviation. A number of the world's largest airplane makers are actively developing hydrogen-powered long-haul aircraft for that purpose. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a super fun one. But let's take it back to the energy system and talk about a really really big one. And I'm gonna I'm gonna move us off of this continent and talk okay. talk a little bit about the rest of the world. So there are. There are big economies around the world that don't have access to robust, low-cost renewable resources. 
let's take mm-hmm. Japan as an, as an example. Singapore is another great example. South Korea is another great example. These nations desperately want to decarbonize and need a way to do so. Their current energy mix is a combination of largely a combination of coal and LNG. Both have their issues, right? Coal is not too expensive, but it's extremely dirty. LNG is quite expensive. There is an opportunity globally to replace those energy streams in transcontinental or intercontinental transport of energy with a carrier that's renewable. You can't move the electrons across oceans very easily, but you can move chemicals across oceans very easily. We know how to do that. We, we do it every day in, in the LNG world. It turns out hydrogen via the Haber-Bosch process to produce renewable ammonia is an adequate vector for decarbonizing those industrial economies as well. Uh, Japan, most notably, is, is um, very committed to this, this program. It does bear a dip of our toe into the discussion, I feel, especially kind of where we are looking at replacing electrons and chemical processes in, as you mentioned, areas with ac- without access to low-cost renewables, which presumably means creating hydrogen without renewables or transporting it from places that have low-cost renewables. Does the color of hydrogen matter? Lots of conversation around <laughs> blue and green and pink and gray. Can we talk about that a minute? So I don't look at hydrogen as a solution. I actually look at renewable electrification as a solution. And I look at hydrogen as a way to marry, as a vector, between renewable electrification and things that are hard to electrify. And when you look at it from that context, all the other colors of hydrogen don't really make so much sense to me, right? The renewable generation is an incredibly low-cost and abundant natural resource that Mm. as a society, we need to learn to take advantage of. We need to learn how to generate more of it, generate it cheaper, and move it around to where it's needed, both spatially as well as virtually vis-a-vis different applications. Hydrogen solves that problem if you can make it cheaply from renewable electricity. Okay. So if I'm hearing you properly, it sounds like your underlying thesis is that hydrogen is a an efficient and effective replacement of natural gas globally, presuming it is made from low-cost renewable sources of electricity. Absolutely. For hydrogen to be produced at fossil parity cost, it needs to be produced from extremely low-cost energy. Let's take, um, I think it's purple hydrogen, right? Nuclear via electrolysis. So that input energy is fundamentally too expensive to produce hydrogen at natural gas parity prices. It's not a technological question. It's an input energy cost question. You can just do the math on the price per kilowatt hour, convert that to hydrogen equivalent, and you'll get to the point I'm, I'm making. Yeah. So we need extremely low cost energy input. And one of the one of the technological barriers to fossil parity hydrogen is an equipment kit that can convert that very low cost but intermittent and low capacity factor resource into hydrogen cost effectively. That means the equipment, because it operates intermittently and at low capacity factor, has to be extremely flexible. It's got to be perfectly comfortable slamming on and off when the wind blows or when a cloud goes over your solar plant. And it's got to be extremely low capital cost because the capacity factor is low and hence the utilization is low, right? So those are the two, actually, those are the two primary constraints that our company, Electric Hydrogen, is working. 
So there's a lot of colors of hydrogen talked about in the industry. The current gray hydrogen that's produced by steam methane reforming that exists today, we know how to do that at industrial scale, and it emits a ton of CO2. If we capture that CO2 and sequester it, that adds cost to that hydrogen production. And it's a significant cost adder. Um, We know how to do it. It's not a technological impediment. It's a question of price point. We believe at Electric Hydrogen that fossil parity hydrogen is achievable even without the added cost of carbon capture and sequestration. But should we as a society decide to demand carbon capture from the production of gray hydrogen, it just makes our economics that much better and our endpoint more achievable. So gray hydrogen can be produced in a carbon neutral manner via carbon capture and sequestration, but again, with with added cost. One other important point to note, and this is being kind of vehemently debated in our little corner of the world these days. One other major point is the upstream methane, fugitive methane emissions from the uh, primary production of natural gas and the transport of natural gas. So your listeners might have heard some discussion around this topic. There's process emission from steam methane reforming. That's the carbon in the methane molecule being emitted as CO2. But upstream of that, there's methane that leaks out from the wellhead, from pumping, from transport of natural gas. That methane is, I think, around 100 times more potent from a greenhouse gas perspective than the CO2 itself. And it becomes a major issue as we start to think about how to decarbonize the industrial sectors with hydrogen. This is one reason why I'm a big believer in actually skipping over carbon capture and sequestration of gray hydrogen and moving directly to renewable hydrogen. Well, Rafi, given that we are looking at how to spur innovation for a sector that can have a massive impact on our overall ability to decarbonize our grid and many industries, and that you've been involved in very material ways in attracting investment to other sectors, namely solar, uh, aimed at doing this. What is the scale of innovation investment you expect to see in the hydrogen sector? Today, it's really nascent, Nico. There's, there's not a whole lot going on today. There's a lot of interest. There's a lot of hype. There's a lot of industrial activity, but I would say it's nascent activity. It, it reminds me of solar in the days leading up to the feed-in tariffs in Germany. Uh, so mm-hmm. back in 2008, you remember those days well, when absolutely. solar really took off, right? <laughs> I, I think that's, that's metaphorically a good, a good way to reference where we are in hydrogen writ large. For hydrogen to be industrially useful and to be scaled, will require innovation not only in the technology of production of clean hydrogen, but also in each and every one of the use cases. And in that sense, it's a much more complex problem than electrification via solar and wind. In the early days of solar and wind, let's you know go from Germany to the US, we were able to deploy pretty significant quantities of generation in the US before we started to recognize some of the integration challenges which which now constrain adoption in in you know particular high penetration areas like California for example hydrogen is is going to feel those kinds of integration constraints much earlier because it's a more complex economic problem and physical problem moving hydrogen moving electrons you know 
wires are agnostic to the source of the electrons, right? You can just put the electrons on mm -hmm. the grid, the existing infrastructure, and move it around. Hydrogen isn't quite so simple. Do you have a sense in dollars or euros what the what the anticipated investment like? Is this a trillion dollar, a ten trillion dollar industry? Have you what are you hearing in the zeitgeist as you all talk about what what is needed to get this industry going? I think people are talking about billions and tens of billions of dollars investment in infrastructure. Now, now we're talking about infrastructure investment, not innovation investment. Two different things. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Um, the innovation investment that's you know r and d dollars right that's a whole nother matter and you know there really isn't much of a zeitgeist around what's being done there but i can tell you that there's a lot of activity there's investment occurring globally with centers of innovation in primarily in europe and in china and in the united states and the dollars are starting to flow mm -hmm. yeah, into innovation the infrastructure investment dollars are really only beginning to start flowing, mm. right? So what we're yeah. seeing, uh, the spearhead of that that uh, spending, I think, is in Europe today. And what we're seeing in Europe is largely pilot projects at the tens of megawatts scale with discussions around larger projects at the hundreds of megawatts scale. Now, again, Nico, when we think about the problem statement, what does it take to actually impact in a material way greenhouse gas emissions from the industrial sectors? We have to zoom way, way out and think about terawatt scales of deployment. So there's a huge mismatch between the capacity of the industry to manufacture components and to deploy systems and the need in the use case if we really take decarbonization seriously. Along that line, what are the types and scale of projects that you see getting traction today? I know you mentioned in Europe, and I guess my question is, A, what does traction look like with regard to hydrogen? B, are these predominantly pilot projects, kind of like what we saw back in the German fit days where a big project was around 10 megawatts, not 10, not a, not a gigawatt. And so can you speak a bit to the scale of these projects, especially considering what you just mentioned around the terawatt and giga, giga scale that we need to get to? Yeah, Nico, um, they are pilot scale. What's being done is pilot scale. So you asked mm -hmm. a question earlier about reality versus hype in the hydrogen mm -hmm. economy. There is a lot of hype right now about large-scale deployments, but no real action yet. There's planning, there's preparation, but there are some missing ingredients to really mobilize deployments at the large scale. And, you know, again... In infrastructure and energy cost rules. So the missing ingredients mm -hmm. all come down to the technological tidbits, the equipment inputs, the, cap the deployment inputs that lead to very, very low cost generation of renewable hydrogen. That's where we have to go down the learning curve. I tend to think of learning curve in, in two ways. There's manufacturing learning curve. How do we make electrolyzers that are really good and really cheap? And that comes, that learning comes with volume, with experience. But just as importantly, there's deployment learning curve, right? As a project developer, how do you get more efficient, both in the development process of bringing a renewable gas into the market, but also in the financing of that uh, infrastructure project? Well, it all sounds very familiar to me as uh, I've been in the solar industry since the mid-aughts and the time period that you referenced deciding to 
start a, a residential solar company back in that day. You know, we touched a bit earlier on about your journey from first solar to hydrogen electric and the underlying philosophy, the, the questioning, the brainstorming that you as a group were doing. I think this might be a great opportunity for us to talk a bit about the growth opportunity that you see. And I'll start with a question that doesn't go directly at the heart of the matter, but where do you likely see or when do you likely see this becoming a, a viable business? So as I mentioned earlier, <laughs> I don't really love the term hydrogen economy because there isn't one today. And to your question of when do I see this becoming a viable business, it, it's not a viable business today. So renewable hydrogen today is too expensive to really be viable without massive policy support. We are starting to see that policy support. And if done right, if not overdone and overplayed, it can be the catalyst to going down that learning curve, both in, in technology and in deployment, and getting us to the promised land of, of fossil parity pricing for the product. That's a long road. It's a hard road to, to go down, uh, but I, I think we are going to go down it. And sometimes I guess get asked the question, why this time? Why now? Mm -hmm. right? People right. have been talking about hydrogen for, for decades and decades. Why is this time different? I think it's fundamentally different. And actually, it goes back to why my co-founders and I felt it was the right time to start this company. It's fundamentally different because we can see our way to sub $20 a megawatt hour renewable electricity today. That's the fuel that feeds hydrogen production mm -hmm. that allows us to make fossil parity renewable hydrogen a reality. We also can see the makings of a technology platform that can perform that transformation really, really cost effectively and efficiently. So those are the two ingredients that are necessary and the two reasons why this time is different. Overarching all of that, the global support and serious galvanization around decarbonization is finally here. And I think your, your listeners all probably, you know, this is probably a bit of an echo chamber here, but, uh, but your listeners get that. When I started in solar, it was Germany. It was the German mm -hmm. voter, the Green Party, who motivated the industry to scale. Nico, I'll admit to you, in my 13 years at First Solar, I went through at least three, you know, you could call them near-death experiences, where we didn't know if the industry was really sustainable. Right. We, we really didn't know. I mean, quite honestly, we didn't know if the market was, was real, real in a, in a sustainable manner, in a 100-year kind of way. Those are scary moments. I think we're past that. I think we're past that as, as human society at the global scale. I think we're, we're now yeah. really, really focused on the problem statement, and we're actively pursuing solutions and internalizing the fact that there will be costs to those solutions. So all a long way of saying, I think this time it is real, and I think scale is coming. Part of our mission of electric hydrogen is to bring that scale to the market much faster than it would otherwise occur. I'm not a patient guy. I don't want to wait 15 years or even 10 years to see multi-hundred megawatt scale electrolyzers pumping renewable gas into pipes. I want to see that in a much, much shorter amount of time. Um, that's, that's our mission statement in electric. Well, how then do most of our listeners who are themselves building or working at major solar firms trying to build this massive, low-cost, 
zero carbon electricity generation infrastructure. How do we take advantage of the coming opportunity, the coming boom in hydrogen? What are the synergies and also where do you see the gaps between here and there? So first of all, renewable hydrogen production from electrolysis will can and will consume massive amounts of renewable generation. And so, you know, if we're successful in this endeavor, the market for solar and wind developers will expand dramatically. That's a great opportunity. But as I said, price really matters. And I would encourage solar or renewable developers who are thinking about this opportunity to think long and hard about constraints to reducing cost in the context of the use case for those electrons. So is an interconnection really required? Or should hydrogen electrolysis be performed on site behind the meter with a renewable resource? Should the two projects or assets be co-developed or should they be developed separately? These are really interesting questions that um, you know I would encourage creative project developers to think long and hard about. I don't know the answers to the questions, quite honestly. I have opinions and theories, but you know what I realized in over a decade watching and participating in utility-scale solar is that the market really does work. Project developers who understand their local environment and their particular counterparties and customers come up with solutions that I never would have dreamed possible to project development intricacies and super, super creative ways to reduce cost and bring new projects to the market. So I just want to encourage everybody to think a little more broadly. It's not just about pushing electrons onto wires anymore. Now there are more complicated use cases and man, complexity is a project developer's best friend. It's interesting that you bring it up because I've recently been reading into alternative uses for solar capacity, specifically uh, in particular in markets like Texas, where curtailment's a real issue. Yeah. I know that's got to be some of what uh, you know we, we need to be thinking about and you're hinting to, but there are other solutions, candidly, even uh, esoteric solutions like mining for alternative currency, like Bitcoin as a solution to curtailment. And, and it does it, that doesn't directly address the global uh, decarbonization of our grid. So, but the, but there are nonetheless real things that we have to fight for because there, because there's money in that value stream. And as a developer, folks are going to be looking at where can they make the most money. Previously in, in your commentary, you know, you really focus, especially with regards to like South Korea and Japan, Singapore, in the portability of hydrogen in the same way that uh, nat gas and LNG is portable. And it makes me think a bit about where is the existing infrastructure? We've had a portability issue in the past with energy. We've solved that in many different ways, uh, namely with nat gas and barrels of oil. But also your comment around do we need interconnection raises a separate question that I want to sort of co-mingle with this. It seems that as developers of assets, one would want to be thinking about where the hydrogen is produced. And if you're thinking about where the hydrogen is produced and you're producing it, co-locating it perhaps with a solar farm, then you also must be thinking about what existing infrastructure exists. Can we talk a bit about where existing infrastructure aligns with the hydrogen future economy and, <laughs> and who owns it, how we might develop relationships or partnerships or rethink the way that we, that we work together in that, re, in that regard? Yeah, yeah. Great question, Nico, and, and a lot to unpack there. Yes, hydrogen is portable, but 
know the means of moving it in massive quantities does not exist today. And and for it to exist, I think you're right. We have to think both about new infrastructure and about reusing existing infrastructure. And so, you know, as a project developer, how do you think about this problem? You, you well, of course, you need an off taker. You need to know who's going to pay you for the gas you're producing. But you also need to think about how you're going to get that gas to the place where it's needed. The electric transport, so the electric transmission infrastructure, and the natural gas pipeline or gas pipeline infrastructure, they're not really coincident. They're different networks with different constraints. This might sound like a problem at first, but actually, if you flip it on its head and think about it a little differently, it actually sounds to me like an opportunity as well to stake out really, really new, interesting claims with high renewable resources near different forms of interconnection. So think about a gas interconnection mm-hmm. rather than a electric interconnection. Uh, factoid, right? Um, more energy is moved in the United States in gas form than is moved on wires. Another interesting thing, the, the prospect of developing new electric transmission is more costly and more time-consuming, longer lead time than the prospect of building a new pipe. So if you think about the problem differently, I think you come to the point of realization that there are different solutions, existing infrastructure included. There's a huge existing infrastructure of natural gas, both transmission and distribution. If we just focus on the large industrial use cases, then we're typically talking about transmission infrastructure, not distribution infrastructure. Uh, distribution, think about the you know three-quarter inch diameter pipe going to your house or you know inches diameter pipes running running under city streets transmission infrastructure think about you know two foot three foot diameter pipes running across prairies the transmission infrastructure today is a combination of two things it's a combination of physical assets the dollars that were spent building pipes and compression stations but more importantly in my mind it's rights of way so the owners of those infrastructure assets have existing rights of way that can support duplicative in infrastructure that's ideally suited to moving hydrogen. So there's a there's a couple of couple of ways to solve the problem, and and smart people in the in the midstream of of natural gas are thinking hard about this. What advice would you give to solar developers in terms of like helping them understand who owns that infrastructure and what business opportunities exist, if any, around upgrading that infrastructure? What needs are there? How could partnerships be developed? Yeah, Nico, it's 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 complicated, and and therein lies the opportunity for project developers, I think, to be very creative and thoughtful. So, in the existing industrial use cases, the production of hydrogen and the use of hydrogen are typically bilateral agreements, where the steam methane reformer plant is owned by one company, and there's a very short pipe to the Haber Bosch plant, which makes ammonia, and they just pay, you know, one pays the other. For, for that service effectively in that, that stream of gas. That's one thing. A whole nother thing is the emerging topic of hydrogen blending into the natural gas stream, which can actually kickstart the industry and provide a demand sink for large-scale production that's geographically remote. Ultimately, that becomes a bridge to dedicated hydrogen transport pipelines. And, and I do believe in that in that future long term. But from a project development standpoint, I think you got to think first and foremost, you know, just like in electric project development, you have to think first and foremost about your offtake. 
who are you going to sell the product to? And then build your project to satisfy that need. In the case of a current industrial consumer, let's say, again, a pneumonia plant somewhere, you might be best served by locating that electrolyzer near that point of use and then moving power, moving electric power from a renewable asset to the electrolyzer. In the case of direct pipeline injection, obviously the location of the electrolyzer is ideally going to be near that pipeline or the injection point. Mm-hmm. So different answers for different use cases. I really appreciate the insight. Uh, you've, you've clearly put a lot of time into thinking about the various aspects that impact your own go-to-market strategy. Uh, you know, you mentioned that Europe and China are in many ways leading the charge, both from an innovation and a deployment and policy perspective. What are you and your team learning from other regions that's informing electric hydrogen's go-to-market strategy? You know, I, I learned a lot from China in the solar industry, and I'm trying very hard to internalize that learning and apply it to electric hydrogen and what we think will unfold in the hydrogen technology industry. So what, what we saw in solar is that the Chinese companies competed against one another very effectively with, with tremendous government support, both in manufacturing dollars, but also in offtake, in project deployment dollars. They leveraged that support via brutal competition into a learning curve and a cost reduction curve that those of us in the Western solar industry thought and argued for many, many years was impossible. I'm among them. There, there shouldn't have been anyone in solar with more visibility to future costs and technology improvements than me as when I was first solar's CTO, and I totally missed it. I totally missed what was possible through that learning curve and through focus on cost. That's ingrained in me now. I have that scar tissue. And how does it inform what we're doing at Electric Hydrogen? Cost is king, right? So, so the dollars per kilogram of hydrogen produced is the only metric that really matters in our worldview. And every engineering decision we make, every research decision we make has to be focused on the lowest hanging fruit to drive that cost down to, to um, fossil parity. So that's, that's first and foremost. Europe, on the other hand, is a very different beast. So, so Europe is supporting the development of a hydrogen economy with both very strong incentives and supports, financial supports, but also with the support and development of hydrogen transmission, storage, and use case infrastructure. The latter is going to set Europe up as a winner in this race in the long term. That infrastructure to move and utilize renewable gas, renewable hydrogen, sets Europe up to be more energy independent and much, much greener. The Mm. super heavy support for the early production of hydrogen at very high costs, I think, is a point of caution. We saw this in Europe with renewable energy. We saw kind of the whiplash or the seesaw effect, the pendulum swing from very high subsidies to the withdrawal of subsidies and the crash of markets uh, and a number of pendulum swings until it ultimately damped out. I'm concerned that we might see the same thing in Europe with hydrogen. Rafi, you have touched on several very interesting points regarding how policy has supported the growth that we've seen in renewables and should we anticipate support the growth in an inevitable hydrogen economy. 
I have a very simple question that I hope encapsulates where I'd like to hear your thoughts. How do we get regulatory and incentive policies right here on our shores to spur growth here for you and your contemporaries, as opposed to over in Europe and China? A lot's changed in the last decade with regard to both industrial policy in the U.S. and regulatory policy. You know, I I wish with regard to hydrogen and renewable hydrogen production or clean hydrogen production, I wish I could give you the simple answer. I wish we could somehow via a politically expedient or a politically viable market mechanism, internalize price the overall social cost of greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, I'm a deep believer in free markets because I'm a deep believer in human ingenuity. I don't think markets are magic. People are magic. And markets just allow people to do what they do and to be creative and fight for their for their beliefs and their, their, what they believe is the right answer, the best answer, right? So pricing greenhouse gas emissions sets the stage for all of us to do the right thing and to find the best solutions that are most economically and hence productively viable for us. I'm not sure we're going to get there. And I think policymakers have a really tough challenge finding other mechanisms to achieve the same ends without picking winners in air quotes, right? So the problem with picking winners is that you necessarily shut the door to human creativity by picking a solution. Let's say we pick gray hydrogen. That's our solution. Carbon capture and sequestration. Blue hydrogen is going to be the answer. Oh no, green hydrogen is going to be the answer, right? Those are all artificial choices because we can't predict the future. We don't know what people are going to invent. We don't know what's going to be most efficient. I think the right answer is to to allow fertile ground for all of those solutions to compete one against the other and may the best solution win. Is there anything in particular that either you are, I'll use the word lobbying, there may be a better word, lobbying for, hoping um, for, or trying to rally your circle of influencers and friends around with regard to the current reconciliation bill or others that we should all be aware of? We've seen in the solar and wind industries, the power of in wind, the PTC, in solar, the ITC. Those mechanisms of cost reduction help to bridge the gap between the the non-carbon priced alternatives and the carbon neutral new technology. Right, so two solutions, right? Buoy up the price of the carbon emitting alternative to internalize the the cost of that carbon emissions, like greenhouse gas influence, or bring down the cost of the non-emitting uh, resource, wind or solar. The same thing is being considered now in Washington with a hydrogen production tax credit. And I don't have a first principle, fundamental view on whether or not that's the right answer, but I can say from experience that it worked in wind and solar. It helped us Mm -hmm. go down the learning curve and make those technologies more and more competitive to the point now where they're cheaper than the fossil alternatives. And I think it can do the same for hydrogen if done right. We do have to be careful not to support technologies that emit CO2 or other greenhouse gases. We have to make the right choices. Well, as we look toward a future where many agree that Developing a hydrogen economy is not only useful for decarbonizing our grid, but necessary. Where do you see key obstacles as 
day to day, you are seeking to build a company that will empower and enable this economy? The fundamental constraint right now is all of the complexity and uncertainty around offtake of hydrogen and how one gets Mm. paid or monetizes the clean renewable attribute of the hydrogen that's produced. If we think about hydrogen as BTUs, right? Same way we measure natural gas. What makes a hydrogen Mm. BTU more valuable than a natural gas BTU, right? It's, It's the fact that it's clean. Now, question is, how do you get paid for that? And, and therein lies the complexity. Every market views that problem differently. California has the LCFS. It's, it's very, very market specific. And I think people are still figuring out how they can sell that product in an economical way and recognize its value in, in the marketplace. So to me, that's, that's probably the primary constraint. You know, being a technologist and building a technology company it's interesting that I'm not talking about technology as, as a primary constraint, but maybe that's because, uh, you know, that's where my head's goes. my head goes every day. For those who maybe aren't super familiar with the specifics of electric hydrogen's approach, where in the overall value chain are you as a technologist addressing the market? What is it that you're creating that's going to help scale? So when we look at the industry today, we see companies that are very, very good at electrochemistry making electrochemical stacks. This is the chunk of the system that that does the magic conversion of electrons into splitting water. What we don't see is a package solution, a solution that actually meets project developer and owner's needs. The translation of that electrochemical stack to an actual project that's working and converting electrons into hydrogen is a very expensive and bespoke process. It's much like building a small Mm -hmm. chemical plant. It requires bespoke engineering that's site-specific, procurement of obscure components from a very distributed supply chain, integration of all that into a complex system. We're putting our scope as, uh, as a company around that whole problem statement. How do we take the turnkey cost of a hydrogen production plant down to heretofore unbelievable levels Uh, unbelievably low price points so that we can enable this magical fossil parity production cost of renewable hydrogen. When you think about the problem that way, from a project economic perspective, you become less myopically focused on the electrochemistry bit or the compression bit, Mm -hmm. and you look at the whole system, the system as a whole, frankly, inclusive of the energy source. Not to say that we're planning on being renewable energy developers. We're not. But mm-hmm. we have to think very clearly about how we obtain the lowest cost kilowatt hours, where yeah. we can obtain those, and what are the product requirements on our end to facilitate the use of those electrons. Is there an analog from other industries that you think about, or maybe when you speak to non-technologists or non-energy folks at a dinner party, you try to use to help them understand kind of you know the way that this company did this for another industry we're doing for the energy sector. Yeah, it, it's it's a little um, overreaching, but I'll use it anyway. I can use it because Dorian, uh, my co-founder, is from there. So Tesla did this in the automotive industry. There's no single silver bullet that Tesla invented. Nothing out of a, a university laboratory that that made Tesla what it is today, mm-hmm. which is not only the most valuable car company in the world, but also the single force that moved the rest of the auto industry towards electrification. 
what mm-hmm. Tesla did was to look at the problem as a whole, as a system, inclusive of the driver and the driver's use case, and to question a lot of old assumptions, right? How far does a driver really need to go on a charge? How often does a driver really need to go more than that distance? Is that really an impediment? How do we charge these things? So Tesla looked at the problem as a massive system and then crafted a solution bit by bit with a lot of hard work and a lot of really incredible engineering effort to solve for the desired outcome. That's kind of what we're trying to do with electric hydrogen. You know, we have a team of electric chemists working at wet benches and fume hoods doing the magic electrochemistry piece, and we think doing it better than the old tried and true suppliers of electrochemical units. But having said that, that's only a piece of the solution. You know, that's kind of like Tesla's battery pack, right? The rest of the car also had to be adapted to provide a revolutionary solution into the market. Yeah. We could spend an entire other episode on just that discussion. I hope (laughs) that we will. Before I ask my, my parting questions, I always like to get some insight from guests around where they're learning. What authors or newsletters, maybe even podcasts or journals, help you stay informed on this subject? Oh, wow. Um, I can't give specific references. Uh, I'm just overcome with a deluge of research organizations and institutes and thinkers who are all thinking about the new now reincarnation of the hydrogen economy concept and the diversity of opinions is <laughs> is mind-boggling. It's a fire hose for me, right? I'm, I'm an electrical engineer. Um, electrification was an easy market for me to understand and an easy uh, industry for me to ultimately understand. This whole piece of the energy sector around gas is is all new to me. So I'm, I'm learning really fast and uh, hopefully yeah. not making a lot of mistakes along the way. If folks wanted to reach out, connect with you or with electric hydrogen, how do you like to be found? What's the best way for folks to engage with you? Rafi at eh2.com. LinkedIn also works. Fantastic. Final two questions. What sacrifices will we have to make to achieve the hydrogen economy that you envision as possible? I think we only really have to sacrifice one thing, which is we need to embrace the willingness to price the externality of greenhouse gas emissions. I think once we do that, everything else falls into into place. Well, what ultimately, if we do this right, does this look like in 20 years? In 20 years, we not only have a largely clean and renewable electric generation and distribution sector, but we've also replaced fossil fuels, predominantly natural gas, also coal, in our industrial sector with renewable molecules produced via the electrolysis of water with clean wind and solar as the energy input. I think the future looks like wind and solar, period. And those can be used directly. Those can be stored electrochemically, and they can be converted to gaseous form and downstream of gaseous form to other forms, including synthetic fuels, which can power the various use cases that batteries aren't simply aren't up to the task of powering. The future is wind and solar, which can be utilized in various ways to convert and transport electrons and power our next industrial revolution. Absolutely. We are, we are embarking on the rebuilding of our entire industrial infrastructure to be powered from wind and solar, one way or another. Rafi Garabedian is CEO and co-founder of Electric Hydrogen. 
It has been a true pleasure and honor to learn from you about the role of new technologies in what we all expect to be the hydrogen economy to come. Thank you, Rafi. Thank you, Nico. It's been great talking to you. I appreciate your super thoughtful questions. All right. If you've listened to the first three episodes, then you know what's next. We're going to bring my friend Sheldon Kimber from Intersect Power in and talk a little bit about the interview after the interview. What did we learn and where do we go with it? Sheldon, welcome. Thanks, Nico. Good to be back. Great to see you, my friend. So there is a, a lot to unpack. Rafi's an OG. I'd like to hear your hot take after having just listened to it on what you came away with as the high points from the conversation with Rafi. Yeah, so Rafi's obviously someone I have tremendous respect for, both in his role at First Solar and and, and in what he's doing now. I think you made a, a bunch of really good points. And the interesting part is like, you know, he's a technologist and yet he understands the market pretty deeply as well. So, you know, he can just as easily talk my business as anybody else's. But the handful of things that I would sort of put my finger on are one, the conversation he kind of laid out around the limits of direct electrification and how that kind of motivates the premise of hydrogen overall. I thought he brought a, a real clarity to, look, it's about the input energy cost, right? Totally. We can talk about hydrogen being the, the quote unquote hydrogen economy, right? Which he, he, he mocked at several points, but it's really not. It's actually just like, it's the clean energy economy. And it's about how do we take electrons, turn them into molecules so we can move them around. So, you know, I think I thought he had mm -hmm. a, a real clarity about what was important and what was driving the growth. You know, there's a handful of other things he he had to say about kind of how developers should approach a hydrogen and, you know, solving the problems that'll come up in this industry as it scales. So lots of interesting things to dig into. Any favorite quotes from the interview? Uh, yeah, <laughs> in particular, he had a couple of quotable moments, actually, that I thought were were, were interesting. But as a personal uh, favorite, I would say complexity is the project developer's best friend. I actually wrote it down right here. That one, <laughs> yep, that yep. one. You're going to tattoo that one on your forearm. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it basically uh, uh, describes pretty much, you know, the only value that I bring to, to the market, I guess, as a project <laughs> developer. Yep. My biggest takeaway here is that he underscored, you know, put in bold italics, bright lights around the thing that keeps coming up as a recurring theme. And it will again in episode five, cheap green electrons win. And we still aren't there. I was, I was like flabbergasted to hear him say, there is no hydrogen economy. <laughs> yeah. uh, I hate that term. But, uh, but the whole reason was because there's nothing to build an economy on until you have, to your point, in the very first episode of essentially so many green electrons that you could give the electrons away for free. Now, what do we do with it? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think he sort of gave that answer in response to a question from you about mm -hmm. like, what are the fundamental barriers, right? Right. And I think I found it interesting that as a, as a technologist, you expect him to say, well, you know, we're, we're working on this, this whiz bang innovation to mm -hmm. electrolyzers, it's going to change the world. And I'm not not in any way taking away from their tech. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm more just saying that to highlight sort of the input cost of your product is as like the enabling features. Yeah demonstrates great understanding of the market. Well, he definitely has a great understanding of the market. I, I probed him a lot on how and why he made the decision to do what he could. He is doing. He could do anything, right? The guy, he comes from such a great pedigree and could have, could have gone anywhere. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted him on the show to dig into the technological advantages as a chief technology officer from a company like First Solar that he sees 
the need for, the need to create. You know, one of the things that you and I talked a little bit about was his perspective on the limits of direct electrification. Can you outline your thoughts on that? The word I've used, and I, I think I first threw it out there in something, I gave a little speech at Berkeley in 2014 or 2015, and it was all about the, the decarbonization trends that didn't matter, but were overhyped, and the ones that really did matter. And at the time, the term I kept using was retrofit, right? Yeah. And I was using it to really talk about this exact concept. What are the limits to direct electrification, right? Mm -hmm. And what I was trying to say with it was, the world is awash in gas turbines and in internal combustion engines and, you know, boilers for processed steam and all these things that use liquid and gaseous fuels and, and other forms of energy that are not electrons, right? And we're not going to replace the entire capital stock of mm -hmm. the world's industry. And so we're going to have to find substitutes that can work within that capex. And I think you wind up bumping into a lot of engineers who are obsessed with efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. So I found it interesting because I think we were talking about Paul Martin, right? Who mm -hmm. is sort of epitomizes for me. And, I, and I, again, all due respect to, to his points of view, uh, but epitomizes for me kind of a technical person somewhat hung up on the engineering efficiencies of things, right? Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, efficiency is an interesting argument because system efficiency is always kind of where you draw the lines around the system, right? Yeah. And so you can say, what's the efficiency of this engine? Or what's the efficiency of this process from wheel to well, right? Yeah. Which is what people are obsessed with. But when you really step back and you say, look, you know, we need to decarbonize the world. What's the most efficient way to do it? that takes into account both money and speed necessary right. to avoid all these climate damage, you really do find yourself in situations where you might do some pretty unnatural acts to store cheap green electrons as molecules because the alternative is literally to rebuild the, every factory, power plant, you know, car, jet engine on earth, which just yeah. isn't going to happen, right? And so that's one sort of observation I'd make that I think stems very clearly from Rafi's motivating point about direct electrification and its limits. The other thing that I thought was really interesting and in that I probed because of his experience at First Solar and experience with a lot of developers like yourself in the, in the field was exploring what do developers who want to actually attack this market need to wrap their heads around from a solution set perspective. And per commentary from you, the solution set for developers changes radically when you think about developing, co-developing, injecting into sort of infrastructure that you're generally not familiar with. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right on. I think it, things change dramatically. I mean, it's very fundamental. You know, when we first started looking at hydrogen in 2014 and 2015 and 2016, in 2014 and 15 on my own and at 16, having started Intersect, down to like the GIS layers that you buy, you know, <laughs> which, mm -hmm. which do you incorporate pipeline maps when you're looking yeah. at your siting, right? Uh, I mean, some pretty fundamental stuff in terms of the understanding of, you know, where certain infrastructure is, what are the regulatory rules in terms of interconnecting or using some of that infrastructure? How much hydrogen can you carry on a rail car? Guess what? Not much. There are actually yeah. significant regulations about carrying either liquefied or compressed hydrogen by rail. So, you know, things that you learn that are sort of second nature in Green electricity, for instance, having worked in it for many years, just are unknown. Yeah. By and large, renewable developers, speaking specifically to solar and wind, haven't had to deal with natural gas, the electric and gas infrastructure as 
Rafi so adequately put it, are not coincident. They often don't show up in the same place, the networks and constraints. Can you bring us back to uh, a couple of the things that we talked about in episode one that perhaps Rafi supported with evidence in this conversation around the opportunity near term as a bridge for developers to think about how they can use those clean solar and wind electrons? Yeah, I mean, I think the opportunity is just for creativity and also just kind of business model and partnership definition, right? Understanding mm-hmm. what you don't know and yeah. what you need others to help you with is just as important as understanding what you think you, you know, what you what you do know or what you think you can mm-hmm. figure out. So we're definitely seeing a theme in terms of partnership. Speaking of partnership, uh, I think maybe five or six weeks ago, you guys announced uh, a partnership with Electric Hydrogen, something that happened after we started the series, I'll note. And so I feel compelled to ask, can you help me and the audience understand through the lens of the the topic of this episode, which is the impact of technology. You as a developer, at some point, every developer has to decide on technology partners and that partner and the technology stack you're going to go for. Why electric hydrogen and what is it about not just their technology stack, but perhaps their team that is compelling for you? Yeah, well, you know, look, we're open to a lot of technologies and we work with a host of different people. I think, you know, we believe that we won't necessarily have one exclusive electrolyzer partner. But the reason we focused in on working with uh, the electric hydrogen team and Rafi and, and, and company in, in the near term and, 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 and first is just, first of all, the PEM electrolyzer itself, right? The, the ability to, as I think he put it, you know, get, get hammered or get hit up and down by intermittent resources and the flexibility that that technology provides, the modularity of it, it is more akin to the PV and battery type technology that we are already familiar with rolling out. Secondly, though, is, is really as important as the actual technology, because I am not a technologist, is finding the right people, right? And the right talent. So we look at that team and I would happily bet on Rafi and his team because I am one of those people who believes that in the lab, there's a great technology that does almost everything, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sh- obviously there's not a great technology that defies gravity or, you know, but, but in, in a lot of cases, there's a great technology that exists somewhere in a lab, but it takes technologists and, you know, entrepreneurs and business builders like Rafi and Dave and the, their team to bring something into mass production, right? To bring something to a point where it can actually change the world. And so when we think about betting on an electrolyzer team, electric hydrogen really shows up as a team that even though they have yet to build a factory and you know build gigawatts of electrolyzers, we've had experience with them building many factories and gigs and gigs of panels for us. And we have a lot of faith in their ability to operationalize their technology, which is honestly more than half the battle, I believe. Well, as someone who similarly is a non-technical industry participant, it was a true pleasure to be able to have Rafi in the studio and to hear from that technologist's perspective a view on what are the near-term and long-term obligations that we have to the decarbonization of our grid and how hydrogen can contribute. I was struck by the mission of electric hydrogen, which is to generate renewable hydrogen at fossil parity pricing his insistence that we still aren't there, but that a world of sub $20 a megawatt hour green electrons gets us there. And 
you know, the, the opportunity that he pointed out in, uh, in one of his commentary, which are the future use cases make present use cases pale in comparison, like battery storage, aviation, using transport as a vector for decarbonization for places like Japan, Singapore, South Korea. There was so much unpacked in this episode that I hope you got a chance to really internalize it. Sheldon and I are trying to help uh, unpack some of our uh, epiphanies or awareness around what Rafi was keying in on. And our next conversation is with Joachim von Schele of Lind. And Lind is the largest gas provider in the world. It's a slight twist in this series on the perspective from the marketplace of someone who's already dealing in those liquefied molecules. Look forward to that conversation and we'll have you back to round out the series, Sheldon. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's part of a five-part series exploring the green hydrogen economy from the perspective of renewable development, technical expertise, financial analysis, and commercial opportunity. I hope that you'll subscribe to the show on Spotify and check us out also over on the web at mysuncast.com forward slash hydrogen, where you can read more about each guest, find additional background information and references that we discussed in this episode. If you're totally unfamiliar with me, well, I've interviewed more than 400 founders, leaders, entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs in the clean energy industry over the last six years through my Suncast podcast, all in an effort to help you figure out exactly where you fit in the clean energy transition. If you haven't yet, I'd really encourage you to go listen to Suncast. It's the most comprehensive podcast in existence documenting the rise of the solar and clean energy revolution from the voices of the leaders brave enough to stand on the front lines. This Green Hydrogen podcast is a production of Suncast Media and season one is brought to you by Intersect Power. Thank you for listening.